Good morning. Today we're turning in our Bibles to Psalm 80, which is in many ways a pivotal psalm. And perhaps the best way for us to be able to understand it is to look at the diagram that appears on the screen. There are seven particular psalms in book three of the psalms that have so much to do with the threat, the dangers, yes, the invasions that the Israelites have endured. And what Asaph has done in poetic form is that he in essence has built a pyramid for you to understand the intensity and the growing intensity of what is occurring here. Psalm 77, Psalm 78, Psalm 79, all deal with various invasions that the Israelites have endured. When you get to Psalm 80, you are now at what I will call the pinnacle, the peak of these seven invasions. He wants to be able to develop perspective, to give everybody now a greater and deeper understanding of what is involved, what is entailed in these various invasions. He wants to get the Israelite people to begin to think seriously about the God who is with them even when the tough times come. Because it could be very much the case that the Israelites would be saying, but what about the promises of God? He promised us this land. We were his promised people. He promised the Messiah. How do I understand the promises of God when the hard times come? We've penned this thought for us to consider in our inserts this morning. It's this. Then when we lack explanations from God, we continue to trust in the promises made by God. Let me say it again. When we lack explanations from God, we continue to trust in the promises made by God. We long for immediate intervention, but intervention does not always happen immediately because God's time is different than ours. And this is what the Israelite people needed to understand. And this is how this pinnacle psalm addresses the issues of time and relationship to eternity. And so here you now find a Psalm 80 at the pinnacle, the apex of this pyramid of seven psalms that deal with the invasions and the destruction of the Israeli nation but the end is still to come, and Jesus Christ will return. love to read to you from Psalm 80. I'm going to read from verse 1. I'm going to take it down, if you will, through verse 7, and it will give us a better understanding of how all this begins to play itself out. It's to the choir master. It's according to the lilies. So evidently, as the psalmist is penning his thoughts, He's looking out over the landscape, and this is what is inspiring him at this point. 
a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You're enthroned upon the cherubim. Shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You made us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And so what you read in verse 3 and again in verse 7 will be repeated one more time at the end of the psalm. So it's a threefold cry to God for restoration. So this morning, if you have anyone within your life who is in desperate need of restoration, this is a psalm for us. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. And so, Father, now speak to our hearts. This is your word. We're about to plunge into the depths of the truth that's found in these verses and understand how applicable and relevant this is for our lives. There could be someone here today who feels like they're at the pinnacle. Their life is one that's under siege. They've gone through in recent days some extraordinarily difficult times. Here's a psalm that addresses that very issue. So, Father, these moments are important. We're praying now once again that you would warm these hearts, you would engage these minds, that you would shape these wills. As again, now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It appeared in my inbox this week, Shalom, Gary. This year, Tishas Bayav begins at sunset on August 6th on through August 7th. For the Jews, the term means the ninth day of the Hebrew month of Av. The date of this minor holiday on the Hebrew calendar which means that you and I now are right in the midst of this particular holiday. But what's this holiday all about? Well, we're told by Chosen People Ministries who sent out this particular email is that tragedies befell the Jewish people throughout the history on this date. And so they give a few examples. The destruction of the first temple in 586 B.C. The destruction of the second temple in A.D. 70. The edict of expulsion from England in A.D. 1290. And the Alhambra decree which forced Jewish people to leave Spain 
in A.D. 1492. We're told, it's customary for a Jewish people on this day to fast and read the book of Lamentations. And we encourage you to remember this day and pray for the Jewish people, both for protection in the face of rising anti-Semitism and for their salvation. And this is what is read at the very heart of it all. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. It's as if Asaph was participating in this weekend's commemoration. What I want to do is he now takes us on a journey through the various invasions and trials that the Israelite people have experienced over the course of prior years is to draw out a series of perspectives that I think help you and me to better understand life and God's relationship to life. And the first comes out of verses 1 down to verse 3. And we're going to put it like this, that when seeking God's intervention in threatening times, which is what this weekend is all about for the Jewish people, I want you to begin with me and note, first of all, the guidance that God has provided. And you see it now in verses 1, 2, and 3. He begins with these words found in verse 1. Give ear. O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin, Manasseh, stir up your might. Come to save us. Let's camp on that for a moment. Begin to think it through. How does this relate to life? Notice how this begins. He begins with this extraordinary expression for you and me to think through very carefully. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. In the prior Psalms, Psalm 77, Psalm 78, Psalm 79, in each Psalm there is some statement with regard to the idea that God is your shepherd. Take the very last verse of the previous Psalm. Notice how it reads. But we are your people, the sheep of your pasture. We give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. And now what he is attempting to do is to stir up the hearts of the people to praise God when the hard times come. Give ear, O shepherd, of Israel. In Philip Keller's book on the 23rd Psalm, he describes the rod and the staff that comfort us. We know about that in verse 4 of that Psalm. He writes these words The rods, the shepherd's rod, is an instrument of protection, both for himself and his sheep. 
when they are in danger. It is used both as a defense and a deterrent against anything that would attack. When the shepherd stands out of the fields, the staff offers direction. The rod offers protection. The skilled shepherd uses his rod to drive off predators. Once in Kenya, photographing elephants, I was being accompanied by a young Maasai herder who carried a club in his hand. It was a rod. We came to the crest of a hill from which we were, could see a herd of elephants in the thick bush below us. To drive them into the open, we decided to dislodge a boulder and roll it down the slope. And as we heaved and pushed against the great rock, a cobra, coiled beneath it, suddenly came to view, ready to strike. In a split second, this alert shepherd lashed out with his rod, killing the snake on the spot. The weapon had never left his hand, even while he worked on the rock. It was as if the rod was the extension of who he is. Now, what, is, what do we want to understand here is that when God shepherds his people, as in verse 1, the dual symbolism of the staff, which offers a sense of direction, and the rod, which offers a sense of protection, find their meeting place in the hands of the shepherd. Jesus would draw attention to his people when he would say, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Taken, you see, from John chapter 10, verse 11. Now, at this point, then, you and I find that this writer Asaph is stirring those of the northern kingdom who he references as the people of Joseph. You who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir your might and come to save us. What is so significant about The northern kingdom, which he's praying for, had been rebels. And what he's asking God to do is to shepherd them. Bring it home. You might have a rebel in your extended family circle. And what you need to do is to pray for the dual aspect of the staff and rod. Direction, protection. God does not give up on rebels. This is a psalm of grace applied to the northern kingdom that is experiencing such extraordinary difficulties because of a prior revolt against God's plan for his people. And here is now Asaph, and he's praying for a grace to be brought down upon this ten-tribe element that has experienced a form of disunity from the overall purposes of God's people, and he's saying, you're the one in charge. 
before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might, come to save us. What we need, we need a restoration plan for these people. Now, if your family needs it, if you need it, if you've got loved ones who need it, a restoration plan where once everything seemed so connected now seems so severed, so broken. You ancient verse 3, and you pour out your heart before God. Restore us, he says. He includes himself. Oh God, let your face shine that we may be saved. And he takes us right back to that classic, ironic blessing of Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And he is now praying this to those who had been at one time rebels against God's will. Let your face shine that we may be saved. That's how you pray. You lift that prodigal before God. And you have this restoration plan from Scripture in mind. You want the face of God to shine directly upon that person's path. You're traveling in the Andes. And there's a particular mountainous setting where the face of Jesus has been carved out and carved out in such a way that there is a 360-degree perspective on this face. No matter which way you turn, it's as if the face is looking directly down upon the travelers. Now, what we're doing at this point is that what we are praying for are those that represent in many ways the ten, kingdom, ten tribes of the north. And we're saying, God, shine your face upon that person. When they begin to distance himself, herself from you. Here's the restoration plan, O oh God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And now you inch from the first perspective into the second. The first was the guidance that God has provided. And now beginning with verse 4 through verse 7 is the second perspective. The question that God has prompted. He's got a question. Don't we all, when it comes to God? O oh Lord God of hosts. Now he has built something more into his approach to God. He has brought up the idea of Yahweh, Lord, L-O-R-D, capitalized. And furthermore, God of hosts, which means God of the armies, the invisible realm, the angelic realm that can be involved in this whole process. And then the question. It's as if God has prompted a question in Asaph's heart, maybe in yours as well. How long? How long will you be angry with your people's prayers? In other words, it's possible to be a religious rebel. 
You fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our neighbors laugh among themselves as this weekend. And then what we find is that the Jewish people are gathering in synagogues to ponder the tragedies that they have faced over the course, over the course of so many years. And the question now and the question maybe at a very personal level for you, no matter what you're going through, is verse 4. How long? How much more can I handle? How long do I have to keep on keeping on? This is an issue of time. And God is sovereign over time. And in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Have you ever seen the movie High Noon? Filmed in 1951. It stars Gary Cooper as well as Grace Kelly. Cooper is in a small town, the Marshall newly married to Amy, wants to retire. They're going to depart, begin to raise a family, run a store in another town. But then the word arrives that Frank Miller, vicious outlaw, whom Cain had sent to prison, has been released. He's going to be arriving on the noon train. High noon. And his gang's joining him and arriving at the station at the same time. And for Amy, very devout in her faith, the solution is simple. Leave town before Miller's gang arrives. But Cain's sense of duty and honor stir him to stay. Besides, he says, Miller and his gang will hunt him down anyway. But Amy gives Cain an ultimatum. She is going to leave on the noon train with or without him. So everything is now converging at high noon. The gang is arriving. The possibility is that Amy is leaving. Fascinated by this, I looked up how the director put all this together. And there's an autobiography by Fred Zinneman that addresses high noon. A few technical comments I want to provide. Number one, he wrote, the threat hanging over the entire movie is one of a motionless railroad track. It is always static. Number two, the victim looking for help in constant movement, black against white sky, the tension is there. Number three, the urgency, time perceived as an enemy, shown by the obsessive use of clocks. Clocks looming larger as time slips by, pendulums moving more and more slowly until finally stand still gradually creating an unreal, dreamlike, almost hypnotic effect of suspended animation. 
And if you watch this movie carefully, look at the wide range of clocks, large and small, hanging on walls as high noon is approaching. And the question is, how is this going to get resolved? How will the issues be addressed? Is there some kind of rescue plan being established? The writer puts it this way. For a second time now, addressing the how long question, he cries out to God, but this time in verse 7, restore us, O God of Hosts. The word hosts in the Hebrew has to do with the military realm and the invisible world. In other words, God is going to bring his angelic host to protect his people Israel. And now what you're praying at this point in a restoration plan where it seems as though life is broken down, God, bring us back together again. Take the blessings of old and restore them and the blessings for today. Let your face shine upon that son, that daughter, that brother, that sister, that co-worker. That we may, that we may be saved. And God hears the question of timing. How long? And in the fullness of time, Galatians 4 informs us, God brought forth his son. And you're on now to the third perspective. Not only the guidance God has provided and the question God has prompted, the how long, but the preparations that God has made in 8 through 11. And notice how God had prepared his people, the Jews, who he likened to a vine in verse 8 with these words. He brought a vine out of Egypt. And now he's getting them to, to think about all the hardships of the prior days and how God was there to guide and direct. You drove out the nations, planted it, these Jewish people in Palestine. You cleared the ground for it, took deep root, filled the land, Mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. And now what he does is this, in verse 11. First of all, what he does is that he takes you to the Mediterranean. It sent out its branches to the sea. Then he takes you to the Euphrates, and it shoots to the river. And what he's saying now is from east to west. God's in control. He prepared you for something like this. Look carefully. Watch. See how God will involve himself in the issue of this hour. So a vine is meant to produce. And even in the hardships of life, what God wants you, wants me to do, is to be productive, to produce fruit in the turmoil and the challenges of life. John Bunyan, imprisoned, imprisoned for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. When offered freedom on the condition he would stop sharing the gospel, 
he had responded, if I were out of prison today, I would share the gospel tomorrow with the help of God. He used his imprisonment to allow God to cultivate his branch. So he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And looking back, eventually on his imprisonment, wrote, if I were fruitless, it mattered not who commended me. But if I were fruitful, I cared not, nor who did condemn. So now here's the vine. And they're feeling rather weary because God brought them out of Egypt. And now here they are experiencing the vulnerabilities of life. And then Jesus comes along. And he says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser in John 15, verse 1. So now you begin to think seriously about how God has worked in the past and how today's preparations of the soil of your life is meant for you to bear fruit in tomorrow's challenges that come your way. Now there's a fourth perspective. Flows out of verses 12 through 15. Notice fourthly now the urgency that God has observed here in this cry for help that, that is being delivered by Asaph and all of the people that are, that are pondering these words. They feel vulnerable. Maybe you do. Notice the wording. Why then have you broken down its walls? In other words, God, you brought us here. We thought we would be protected, but now all these invaders. It's almost as if now Trisha Bayab is being introduced here, right into verse 12. <clears throat> so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit. We feel so vulnerable. He uses the imagery of the boar in verse 13. And what's fascinating, if you check out Daniel chapter 7, is that again and again and again, the enemies of God are likened to, to animals. The boar from the forest ravages it. And all that move in the field feed on it. So what does he say? It's again a cry. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven. See have regard for this vine. Now, when you feel a sense of urgency, when you have this overwhelming weight on your soul, and there's this sense of desperation for God to break in and bring the blessings of the past into the present, notice the urgency then that Asaph's introducing as a way in which we approach God. Turn. Look down, see, have regard. And he's crying out, O God of hosts. In other words, we need some form of intervention here because we feel so vulnerable in this place where, according to verse 15, you have planted us. You ever been there? Civil War. 1863, listen carefully and apply it to modern life. Union troops have captured some Confederate soldiers. 
they in turn threatened, you just wait till Stonewall Jackson gets around your right flank. The Union troops dismissed this as sour grapes. Union pickets went forward, found that lots of the Southern troops were moving around on the Federal right, but this was figured to be nothing more than what's known as a rolling reconnaissance. They ignored it. Other scouting reports came in of huge, massive Confederate infantry on the Union right. Again, the ranking officers dismissed it, figuring it's simply an act of arrogance. Then a bit of laughter erupted among some of the Union soldiers when they saw how scads of deer emerging from the woods to the west and hightailing it in mad fashion to the east. But that was the last sign. For you see, you heard of him? Stonewall Jackson's troop smashed into the Union right, 28,000 men. They looked for a vulnerable place, attacking in a line over a mile wide, four divisions deep, crashing through shrub, thorns, thought to be impenetrable, and then the terrifying rebel yell and the crash of shells. Jackson's soldiers made a pancake of the right flank. He had found a vulnerable place. Here's Asaph. Why then have you broken down the walls? So that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit. The boar from the forest ravages it. All that move in the field feed on it. So the cry, here's your urgency in this fourth perspective Turn again, O God of hosts. In other words, bring the blessings of the past into the present once again for this family, for this individual, for me. Look down from heaven. You see me? Have regard for this fine. You put me here. The stock that your right hand had planted. Sorry, all you lefties. Here it comes at us again. And for the son whom you made strong for yourself. The son it leads us to this final perspective. Flows out of verses 16 down to verse 19. It's the deliverer that God has promised. Right when you think everything is going wrong and nothing more can possibly be done, and you feel so overwhelmingly vulnerable, and the Jewish people see this anti-Semitism all around them, and so even right now, in this weekend, Tisha B'Av, they are recounting the events and reading out loud the book of Lamentations. Here you have it. In verse, in verse 16, they have burned it with fire. They've cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. <coughs> Isn't that the face that you prayed would shine brightly upon you? your loved ones, but let your hand be the, on the man of your right hand. Who is that? O. Palmer Robertson writes, even though he is speaking of the northern tribes and this Messiah of the north, though we know Jesus, of course, comes from Judah of the south, 
resolution in a single Savior who combines in himself the major elements of both North and South. The ultimate redeemer of God's people is so rich in significance. No one figure could encompass all the facets of his person and his work. So he pulls it together, the northern kingdom represented by Joseph, the southern kingdom represented by Judah. And what Asaph is now doing is that he's offering the Joseph figure of suffering and the Judah figure of royalty and pulling it together at the cross of Christ where the suffering servant dying on the cross had penned over his head king of the Jews. And so out of all this then, we shall not turn back from you. Give us life. We will call upon your name. And so for the third time, he cries out, Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And astoundingly, he includes himself in that. 18-year-old Noah ben Atzi, granddaughter of the late prime minister of Israel, Yitzhak Rabin, spoke these words, November of 1995, memorial service for the assassinated leader of Israel. Grandpa, you were a pillar of fire in front of the camp. You were our hero. Where do we look for another hero? Ah, Noah. Three days later, your hero was raised from the grave. And all the stanzas of life find their completion in the one who secures victory via that cross. Let's stand together. You have offered us five stanzas. You've provided for us five perspectives. When it seems as though life is under siege. So on this weekend, when Jews around the world are commemorating Tisha B'Av and the various invasions of their land and the expulsions of Jews from other lands and where they don't at times know where to go. And when there's times in which people of this congregation and various services are watching online right now wonder, just where do I go? Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved because we know for certain three days later you raised the hero from the grave and we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.
God bless you.